This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with a king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before. We're hospital grade cleaning. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the Metro. No mask, no Metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doing our part. Well, if you'd like 1861, you're going to love 2021. It's Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Because four hours simply isn't enough. This is Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. David French is an author, a thinker, a philosopher, senior editor at the Dispatch these days, and a columnist for Time. He also, you probably saw his work for National Review uh, for quite a while, senior fellow at the National Review Institute. He's a a rock war veteran, a graduate of a little uh, community college law school named Harvard. It's in the Boston area. Have you heard of it? And, and David is a constitutional lawyer as well. David French, it's always a pleasure. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me. What, what was it like being at Harvard uh, as a guy of your political bent? Was it Was it difficult at that time or not? Yeah, you know, it's funny. We have this sort of recency bias that says the political correctness right now is the worst it's ever been. Uh, I can tell you in the early 90s in Harvard, uh, there were things that conservatives face they really don't face now. I mean, when I was there, there was a, that was sort of the heyday of the booing and hissing and shouting down in class. That was, uh, there was an awful lot of like just quite direct harassment of conservatives and there were not many of us there at all. Um, the Federalist Society was tiny compared to what it is now. Uh, the Law School Christian Fellowship was really small. But in spite of it all, honestly, I had uh, it was a great 
time of life I'm really helped me solidify what my beliefs really were and and uh, made friends that have lasted a lifetime. I think sometimes the best thing for a person can be uh, to be put in an environment where your beliefs aren't popular uh, because it really helps you focus on why you believe what you believe. Yeah, not long ago on the radio show, we played a tape of Van Jones addressing a college audience, and he was saying the last thing in the world he wanted folks of his mind to be was safe. He wanted their muscles built. He wanted them to be tough. He wanted them to be resilient, have counterarguments and the rest of it. And and he, like a lot of conservatives, can't stand the whole safe space thing. So uh, a lot of people are agreed on that, no matter which way we swing ideologically. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, there are a growing number of people on the left and the right who are saying, we need a robust marketplace of ideas. Now, I'm not, you know, I think it was wrong that people tried to shout, shout down when I was there. I think it was, a lot of the harassment was, Sometimes really veering into, uh, was really veering into the kinds of uh, extreme versions of cancel culture we see now, where people try to get people fired from jobs. And I don't think that aspect of my experience was at all uh, positive. But what was positive for me was to be in a position where I was surrounded by a lot of people I didn't agree with. And while there were some intolerant folks there, um, there were an awful lot of people on the left who were just fascinating to engage with. I mean, I grew up in rural Kentucky. I went to a small evangelical college in Nashville. And so going up to Harvard was a very different experience I'm for sure. me. And so that's why it was it was good. It was very good for me, even though there were certainly negative aspects. Yeah, there's a reason I want to bring this up uh, as we get into your book. And by the way... Which, I'm, like an idiot, I did not mention, just... Um, we're big fans of the Dispatch, where you are a senior editor, and I'm actually one of the founding members. So you can't go out of business because the only way I can make my money's worth is if you stay in business for decades. So keep at it. Um, uh, but so your book is America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. Divided We Fall is the name of the book. Divided We Fall, and you guys are, uh, you know, you're more anti-Trump than uh, certainly I am, and. I feel like a certain crowd is misled by thinking when Trump goes, whether, you know, in a couple of months or a couple of years or by the end of this week, if the COVID gets him, um, uh, when Trump goes, that everything is going to be fine. Well, you know, things were starting to be a little dicey, it sounds like, there in Harvard in the 90s. They were dicey, which led us to Trump. They're going to be dicey when Trump leaves, don't you think? Yeah, one of the key parts of my book is this. My book is not a Trump-centered book at all. Good. Um, That's the last thing we need on Earth. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it'd be kind of crazy to release a Trump-centered book on September uh, 22nd uh, when he might not be president soon. So, uh, but no, it's not a Trump-centered book at all because the reality is the divisions, these American divisions that we're seeing growing, growing, and growing. they are not because of Trump. Now, Trump has exacerbated some of them. The, the divisiveness of the time has made things worse. But there are huge cultural and religious and political and even geographic realities that are pulling Americans apart, just enormous trends. And no one politician is responsible for them. And if we keep thinking that a politician is responsible for them, ironically enough, we drive up the division and bitterness because – we take these political races and we put too much emphasis on them for the future of our country, which makes people more bitter, more angry, more panicked. But the reality is we have been drifting apart in this country on basically every important 
part of the spectrum for a long time. People are living in like-minded neighborhoods. They are watching like-minded television. They are consuming like-minded media. Uh, even things like the, the secularization of the U.S., where you know there's been a rise of people who don't uh, belong to any particular faith tradition, that doesn't happen evenly across the country. It is again, clustering in the sort of these red-blue divides. And so my, my point in my book is you cannot take all of these trends, add on top of them a layer of real hatred and, and enmity that's measurable, and then say, oh, yeah, everything's going to be fine. We can keep doing this indefinitely with no catastrophic consequences. Well, I know you, like us, are enough of a student of history to understand that things may seem permanent as you're living in them, but right. they began at a certain point, and like everything else, they will end at a certain point. And you think, well, we might not be talking about an ending, but certainly a disruption of what we know as the United States. Yes, yeah. You know, I, I, was, I can't remember who said this recently, but it was, I think, quite telling. But they said, if you watched, if you were from a foreign country or if you were in a foreign country and you're watching some of the news in the United States of America right now with the – uh, potential of a constitutional crisis around the election and vote counting with the civil and urban unrest, uh, with the incredible sharp increase in enmity and division, you would not say that's a stable country. <laughs> like you, you would not look at that and say, this, this place has got it together. This is a stable country. Instead, you would say, there are real issues there, and I could see the possibility and maybe even the probability of it getting worse. And one of the things that I I call for in my book is, number one, we've got to wake up. We have to wake up that this is beyond a politician. This is beyond any given set of policies, tax rates, health care um, policy. It's way beyond that. We're now in a position where every single important cultural, political, religious, and social trend in the U.S. is pushing us apart rather than pulling us together. And we have to wake up to that, and we have to figure out a way to navigate past that. And and, you know, one is, I'm, you know, there's sort of this obvious call uh, for leaders to not exploit division, but rather to seek unity, which is uh, a, a path of extreme resistance right now because people... You don't get a lot of clicks power. for that. You're not going to get clicks on your Twitter feed for that. <laughs> no, you do not. You, gain, you don't gain much power now by seeking unity as opposed to exploiting division. But we also have to de-escalate national politics. You know, one of the things that I point out is that this... This country is increasingly diverse on every measure, whether it's ethnic or religious, um, you know, cultural, and yet we're increasingly centralized in our government. And those two things I don't think are compatible. I don't think it's compatible to have increasing centralization in the face of increasing fragmentation and cultural fragmentation. And so we really need to de-escalate national politics and return more power to people and, you know, to, to have the basic ability to govern themselves and to form the kind of political communities that reflect their values. Well, we will govern ourselves in our own state that we've just created out of the top of uh, California and the bottom of Oregon. The, the part of your title, it is America's secession threat. Lay out a, a Texit or a Cal exit, how that could actually occur. Yeah, so there's two chapters in the book that are they, they're kind of the hinge points of the book. And this is, if you read the chapters and you find them chilling, uh, then I've done my job. If you find them far-fetched, I haven't. But I have a Cal Exit scenario and a Texas scenario in the book. And essentially what they both hinge on 
are similar dynamics that existed in 1776 and then in 1861, and that is a powerful geographically cohesive entity that believes that its fundamental values are under threat even to the point of their lives being under threat. And so in the Cal exit scenario, I have a situation where um, there's been a series of terrible, terrible mass shootings, which leads to a decision from California to implement draconian gun control restrictions that a government constituted of a president who did not win a popular vote and a Supreme Court that has been uh, uh, that has been delegitimized by much of the left in the country essentially says to California, you can't do that, and triggers a series of cascading overreactions from political fi uh, figures on the right and the left. And and one of the, the really key points about this is if you look at, uh, for example, if you look at American history, and if you look at world history, in fact, what ends up happening is you often have situations that are inherently unstable in the sense that there are huge divisions, there are issues of huge, you know, huge, uh, uh, not, you know, huge divisions politically, religiously, et cetera. And imagine like you're building a bonfire, you're laying the wood down, you're, you're uh, stacking it very neatly, you're maybe putting a little bit of kerosene on it, and all that's lacking is the spark, is the fire, the flame. And when you look around history, often you see the flame is supplied by blundering politicians. Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, some folks have described the politicians leading up to the Civil War as blundering. Obviously, the English politicians prior to the American Revolution, many of them were blundering. And so you have these blundering politicians that can supply the spark. And then because of all of this cultural and political and religious division, that spark turns into a roaring flame really fast. And so that's what I'm worried about. I'm very worried about a, a level of division that can turn into, um, you know, disruption uh, with with shocking speed. Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting that you chose a a specific uh, issue, uh, mass shootings and, and, and the Second Amendment and the rest of it. And it's so intriguing, and I, I'm looking forward to reading it. When we discuss this sort of thing... On the radio show, it's usually more, I don't know, maybe the it's unlikely that they abolish the Electoral College, but maybe we get to a situation where the, the coastal populations are so dense, they essentially elect every single president. And Wyoming and Idaho and, and similar states uh, increasingly are the subject of urban-centric government. And, and finally, they've had enough. And and some governor, some breakaway governor of Idaho or whatever, says we're encouraging our people not to pay federal taxes. Oh yeah. And if you want them, you're going to have to send in the Marines, and we know you're not going to do that. Yeah, my brother in Ellis County, Kansas, is not going to be okay with being, uh, you know, dictated to by California and New York. They they would never they would never go along with it. Well, you know the the Texas scenario in the book is kind of like that, and so. If you look at um, the two big fears, left and right, on the left, their fear is minoritarian rule. In other words, they look at things like the Electoral College and the population trends in the Senate, and they say, wait a minute. And the fact that no Republican other than – there's only been one Republican win the popular vote since 88. And they say, wait a minute, these, this minoritarian – And who was that, David? George – W. Bush okay. in 04. <laughs> what are you doing? Let the I man speak. Want, I just want to know who it was. <laughs> it was 
W. So W is the last one to win a popular vote majority. And so there's this real fear, if you talk to a lot of progressives, of minoritarian government. So a minority of Americans dictate how they live. And you talk to a lot of conservative Americans, and they fear majoritarian tyranny. And so, you know, a disruption of these um, safeguards against majoritarian tyranny that exist in Constitution and American tradition. So in my Texit scenario, a lot of it depends on a government that comes into place, abolishes the filibuster, packs the court, and then this new packed court starts really rolling mm. back individual liberty, which causes a you know governors to say no, no, we we're not we're going to you know the su- Supreme Court has made its ruling now let it enforce it. Well, in the rural yeah. parts of the progressive West, David, as you know, we're already seeing this on a county by county basis, in which county commissioners or, or sheriffs are saying we're not enforcing that. Yeah, you're beginning to see it's it's and this is one of the things that ha- actually uh, led me to write this book is the extent to which you're seeing local governments engage in a kind of uh, passive nullification, <laughs> a sort of passive resistance to what they view as governmental overreach. And uh, this is something along with sort of aggressive federalism. So California, for example, which is, you know, a very progressive state but through its government has become extremely aggressively federalist in its approach to the Trump administration. And and so, you know, the Trump administration and a lot of conservatives who previously really liked federalism are not so keen on it uh, anymore. But so what I'm saying is what we have to do is we have to have both parties, whether you're in power or out of power, becoming more aggressively federalist to de-escalate these national politics. But but you're right. There are a lot of jurisdictions around the United States that are uh, by default becoming less willing to comply with the law if it conflicts with sort of the core values of their community. And, and that's, in my view, is an argument against centralization and more of an argument that says, look, we got to let communities govern themselves as much as we can. Because otherwise, you're going to just be magnifying these conflicts because the differences in values between different groups of Americans isn't shrinking right now. It's growing. Absolutely. And I think more than in most of our nation's history anyway, um, if California wanted to secede, you'd have half the country saying, good, get the hell out. We don't want you. <laughs> and, and similar with, you know, Texas. Um, just, you know, a different half would say, good, get the hell out, you bunch of rednecks. So you know when when you've got when you've got that going on it's you know we're talking uh, you know I'm all over the place here but um, we were talking after the debate on Wednesday and 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 the, and the way that was and I, my opening thoughts were what do you expect out of your government we get the government we deserve look at social media look at the way people talk in public in front of kids and women look look at the look at how. Uh, how our culture has changed just in my lifetime, and I'm not that old, how much coarser we've got. So, of course, our politics have gotten that much coarser. And and when when that's where we are, I just, I think your hope for healing is, uh, well, it ain't going to happen soon. Well, I, the book is not a kumbaya book. It is not a book that says, oh, well, let's, we're all going to love each other eventually. It's much more that says, look, we gotta we got to recognize exactly how divided we are. And... You know, we're not asking for love across this, but a basic recognition that each of us has a, 
a, a, our fun, core fundamental right, uh, fundamental constitutional rights, and we also should have a core ability of self-governance. And that's not come by ya, that's pluralism. And pluralism, uh, there's a writer who goes under the name, pseudonym Scott Alexander said that pluralism and classical liberalism are the best civil war avoidance philosophies ever created by the mind of man <laughs> because they allow people with very opposed beliefs and worldviews to live together in the same republic. But you know, one of the things uh, in, about, about my book that I, I do not posit a civil war. That's not what I predict could happen for the very reason that you said that a lot of people are so exhausted with each other that the idea that they'd say, well, we'll go to war and, and have just an awful death and destruction that modern weaponry can unleash on a nation to keep California if California wants to go, right. keep Texas if Texas wants to go. My thought is that the enmity and the disgust is growing so great that there would be a constituency of people that would say, Exactly. Fine. So we're more like a couple that hates each other. Right. I want So do I. Good. Well, we're both happier now. We had a long-running joke on the radio show, David, that when the Chinese invaded uh, San Francisco and San Francisco sent out the call to the rest of the states to send troops, they'd get a lot of, who this? Wrong number. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, the original, it's funny you say that because the original title before we came up with what I think is a better title of Divided We Fall was The Great American Divorce. And I had an analogy of a couple whose marriage was on the rocks. And I said, it's as if red America and blue America, they're not, they're, they're in marriage counseling uh, and one is sleeping on the couch and one is sleeping in the bed. Uh, but they're not quite re- yet ready to call it a day. And, and you know, one of the things I think that we have here is one of the reasons why people are uh, – one of the dangers that we have is that I think both sides are a little bit over-optimistic about their ability to just go ahead and win right. and just sweep aside their opponents. And one of the things I try to do in the book is dispel the notion – that when you have a nation this divided over these many over the things of such importance, the very idea that you can ultimately end it all in the conflict by domination rather than accommodation right. is deeply misguided. And you know, to at the risk of sounding overly uh, simpleton on this, I think we need so badly to re-embrace the concept of liberty, all of us. One of my all-time favorite libertarian uh, sayings is: "Conservatives want." Um, uh, Republicans to be in control, liberals want Democrats to be in control, and libertarians wonder why you want to be controlled. I think <laughs> if if we could better recognize, oh, those people over there have different needs, bit of a different subculture. How interesting. But that doesn't affect me. And meanwhile, yeah. they don't decide I should live like they think. We could we could do fine and visit each other's cities and scratch our heads and think, huh, that's interesting. Well, you know, we actually have that basic layout in the Constitution. You know, if you talk about securing the Bill of Rights, which after the Civil War amendments, the Bill of Rights was not intended to be just a quirky thing that applies to the federal government only, but all Americans enjoy the benefit of the Bill of Rights from government, period. So if you secure individual liberty through the Bill of Rights, our fundamental social compact, but then allow for federalism as allowed for in the Constitution, then you've got a real chance here to de-escalate every uh, de-escalate our elections while at the same time protecting Americans' basic liberties. And where we've fallen down as a country again and again and again is when we have not 
extended the Bill of Rights to every American. I mean, think about obviously slavery, obviously Jim Crow, but other times in American life, our big failure in federalism has been when we federalize the Bill of Rights, when we have a federalism of the Bill of Rights that says different states have, you know, can, can restrict these fundamental liberties. So my, my proposal is the opposite. The Bill of Rights applies to every single person, but then there's broad variation in the states on taxes, on health care policy, on environmental policy, all these things that are really important to folks and reflect their values. But under those circumstances, should you lose the right of free speech, should you lose uh, the right of due process or the right of free exercise for religion, because those are the, that's fundamental to be an American. You and I and Joe are all about the same age, and I'm trying to really fight becoming an old guy who, you know, watches Fox and says the country's going to hell for the rest of my life. I don't, I don't really want to be that. I'd, I'd like to be a little yeah. more solution-oriented. But, um, yeah. you know, the stuff you're talking about and the coarseness of society and some of the stuff that I know you and Jonah Goldberg and people on the dispatch have talked about, the weakness of the parties the 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 emphasis on the president for the president is the Ugh. government at Ugh. every level whether yeah. it's your school or whatever the hell it is your roads the president is and we put all of our eggs in one basket that is yeah. as far away from us as possible all these things are a problem yeah well and think about it to make it even worse we're putting all of our eggs in the basket of a guy who many of us maybe even most of us don't even cast a meaningful vote for them one way or the other correct we, we live in safe red or blue uh, states. So uh, here you have all of this power moving to this one single person where only a fragment of Americans cast real meaningful votes for. And so is it any wonder people are so frustrated that they pour their frustration and rage into pointless social media posting and, and pointless and, and fury-filled Twitter arguments that – all they end up doing, they don't really do much about our body politic except make everybody angrier. And so that's what I mean when DS when I talk about de-escalation, because if we're pouring all our hopes and dreams into a president, when most of us don't even matter for his election, yeah. it's it's really that is not a viable construct for a increasingly diverse country. And and Overlay it on top of it. I keep saying this again and again. If you overlay on top of all these divisions, the very real phenomenon of increased angry, bitter, hate-filled partisanship, that's, that creates instability. Back to the Constitution. Dead white men. That's what I say. <laughs> so uh, David French's book is Divided We Fall, and I'm glad you brought up the election, and we're going to play some of this stuff on the radio tomorrow to pimp your book uh, some more, and I, I hope it sells well, and you become so rich you don't even know what to do with all the money. But um, uh, you brought up the election, and I really like the stuff that you and Sarah do on the dispatch, the lawyer stuff about some of the legal challenges that are going to come around the election. What's the, the, the what, what's the main thing you're worried about, whether it's the mail-in balloting or the different laws that are being changed or whatever that's going to turn into rioting in the streets or we don't know who the president is for two weeks? What, what do you think is the biggest uh, weakness out there? Well, the, the single biggest the single biggest concern that I have is that you have such a difference between the, that the election tightens to a point where it's tighter than the polls currently are because this scenario wouldn't matter if the, the current polls you know, are either accurate or the race doesn't tighten. But let's assume the race tightens a bit, which is a, a proper assumption, I think. 
And you begin to see a situation where one candidate, probably Trump, does better on the in-person voting, and another candidate, probably Biden, does better on the mail-in voting. And this is not speculative. We know that Republicans and Democrats have different views of mail-in and in-person voting. But here's the problem. Even under the best circumstances, there is a higher rate of discarded ballots for mail-in voting than there uh, than, that we've seen, especially in the primaries and for the in-person voting. And if the race is close and you begin to have local election officials discarding, say, mail-in ballots at a higher rate than perhaps normal or appropriate, you're going to have Bush v. Gore, but not just Bush v. Gore in Florida or three, three or four counties in Florida, but in multiple states and multiple jurisdictions within those states in a country that is far more polarized than they were in 2000. Um, in 2000, you know, yeah, that was a contentious election, but if you think about it, like the most dramatic moment in the whole thing was when Bush nodded at Al Gore when Gore got, like, a little bit close to him in the <laughs> debate. Right. And you look back on that, and you're like, oh, that was like the Lincoln-Douglas debates by comparison. Oh, yeah. And so you've got a much more divided country with a really opaque vote counting process that occurs um, behind closed doors, governed by local officials that are not accountable to the rest of the nation, heavily influenced by uh, local partisanship. I mean, it's a recipe for the first time in my life, in my life and I've said this to lots of folks, I don't think it's likely, but it's quite possible that I can imagine an outright constitutional crisis happening in the U.S. in my lifetime. And again, I don't think it's likely um, but it's quite possible. We well, that's the, it. Yeah, and that's the legal stuff in terms of people in the streets when you have Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump saying they're going to try to steal it from us, or who knows, God knows what they're going to say come election day or the day after. That ain't going to happen. I'm going to stock up on plywood. <laughs> that's my plan. <laughs> well, and yeah, you raise a good point by talking about who knows what they'd say in the moment, because everything we talk about right now is theoretical. So we're, like, theoretically angry and upset about what's going to happen on, say, November 3rd and 4th and 5th and 6th. But then when you're in the middle of it, when the whole thing hangs in the balance and we've taught Americans and we've told Americans that the whole country hangs in the balance on the outcome of this election um, and all of a sudden things look cloudy, the rhetoric – do we think for one minute the rhetoric is going to get more tempered? Do we think one for one minute that emotions will be cooler? Mm-hmm. No, it'll it'll be far worse. So, oh boy, I love I love what my um, colleague Steve Hayes said. Somebody asked him, "What do you want to see out of the election?" And he just had a one word response: clarity. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> That in the absence of clarity, we've got trouble. Amen to that. David French's new book is Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. David, it's always fun. It's always stimulating. Thanks a million. I hope we can do it again. Well, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, the um, I've been saying for a long time, I'd like to see somebody win in a landslide. I think that would be very beneficial. Whoever oh. wins, make it be very clear. It wouldn't have mattered if this state went the other way. You take it out, that person still won. Well, especially because if the election is close and there's absolute wonderful clarity for anybody with an understanding of the law and the recounts and everything that happened, and everybody who has that clarity agrees, yes, it's this outcome. It will be so easy to whip up and mobilize people with disinformation. I mean, effortless. Mm. They're already primed. They're ready to believe. God, and we didn't even, you know, we're we're just looking at the people within our borders. We're not even thinking about the 
Chinese and Russians in there jumping into the conversation. Right. Oh, God. Right, yeah. Good so, times. So, so, so what do we do? We take, we take the week before the election off and two weeks after? For vacation? To you and me. And just hope, yeah, and then just hope it all gets settled. Come Sounds back. good to me. Come back. Well, <laughs> folks, that was crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that many cities burned to the ground anyway. I'll be darned. Yeah. <laughs> crazy times. Extra large. When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before. We're hospital-grade clean. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the metro. No mask, no metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doingourpart. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring? But don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks. Join us as we speak with small business owners about the tools they use to turn their ideas into success. From finding that initial spark of entrepreneurship to organizing payments and invoices, we've got you covered. So follow and listen to Mind the Business, Small Business Success Stories on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.